welcome to Rhetoric Orama, a podcast about all things rhetoric. Here are your hosts, Dr. David R. Dewberry and Dr. Tim, as seen on TV, McGee. I'm Dave. And I'm Tim. And today we continue our third season of Rhetoric Orama by discussing the wonderful world of rhetoric. This season is on the rhetoric of X, where X equals a subject, a profession, a field, or a discourse community. Today's topic is the rhetoric of men's hair. So let's hear some untranslated Latin or Greek to get us started. Tunc aperiens veritatem rei dixit ad eam ferum numquam ascendit super caput meum quia Nazareus, id est consecratus deo, sum de utero matris mei si rasum furit caput meum recedet a me fortitudo Mea et deficiam eroque ut ceteri homines. You know, Tim, the moral of the story there, never date a woman named Delilah. Right? Johnny Cash could tell you that story. But so, Tim, what is the rhetoric of men's hair and why not just the rhetoric of hair? So why are we focused on men's hair specifically? The rhetoric of men's hair is the discourse surrounding men's hair, including regulations, styles, religious dictates, and the messages that men's hair communicates in societies. And the reason for a focus on men's hair is because in almost every culture throughout history, the men and women of a given society wear their hair differently. Usually a person can be identified as male or female from 100 yards simply by the appearance of their hair. Tim, I don't know if you know this, but this is 2021, and I feel like you just made that up. <laughs> no way, dude. Sociologists even have a term for it, gender stereotype congruent hairstyles. Tim, did you just make that up again? <laughs> I mean, I, I guess if sociologists have a name for it, it must be real, right? So if we name it, it exists. Um, but back to your claim about the, the messages that men's hair communicates in our society. Uh, are you making hair into uh, uh, making hair into a retor, a perhaps a rehairtor? <laughs> no, not exactly. More accurate would be to say that the person wearing the hair is engaged in nonverbal communication via the appearance of their hair. So their hair becomes part of their ethos, broadly understood not just as character but as tribal membership. Mm, sounds like a lot of content to unpack. So where should we start, Tim? The Hebrew Bible might be nice, Dave. What say you remind us of the tale of Samson and Delilah? Okay, is that the one where um, is that the one where this guy has a kid and they fight with laser swords and oh wait, that's Star Wars. Sorry. <laughs> so uh, uh, Samson and Delilah—that's the one where uh, Samson is a hero of sorts, right, with some sort of superhuman strength, who as a Nazarite uh, promised God to never cut his hair. Um, so he hooks up with this lady named Delilah. And uh, the Philistines offer her, what is it, a pile of silver? Who can turn that down? Uh, to discover the source of his strength so they can defeat him, right? So she learns, uh, she figures out it's his hair. Uh, she cuts it off. And then the Philistines overpower him, poke his eyes out, and make him, uh, make him their slave. A tale as classic as time itself. <laughs> Bummer. And that's just one of many religious proscriptions against cutting hair. There are several within Judaism, including rules for Hasidic men that forbid cutting within a specific facial region around the sideburns. There are other rules that forbid using a razor to shave a beard. Sikh men are not allowed to cut any hair on their body from birth to death because doing so would mar the perfection of God's creation. You know, uh, I know that Amish men, uh, once they're married, they wear uh, long beards because men in the Bible did it. 
And uh, these Amish men, they don't wear mustaches uh, because elaborate mustaches were kind of the norm among military, uh, the military who persecuted the Amish uh, for their religious commitments uh, to non-resistance, which is antithetical to the uh, military mission, right? They're, they're pro-violence and things. Indeed. Rastafarian dreadlocks signal a collection to the Nazarites of the Bible, the same group of Israelites that Samson came from. But Rastafarian dreads are not the first. In fact, dreadlocks go back to 1500 BCE to the Minoan civilization in Crete. They show up in ancient Egypt, among indigenous Australians, Tibetan Buddhists, and among contemporary Hindu sadhus who follow Lord Shiva. So, so I take it this is the ethos part, right? Wearing one's hair or beard in a certain way or not wearing it in a certain way simultaneously signals membership in a group. So for like a, a Mohawk, for example, signals, signals that you're a member in some uh, certain Native American tribes or a certain military unit, World War II, or, you know, maybe even a uh, punk rock band. Uh, but there's a logos, uh, uh, logos aspect to this as well. Uh, it says that I've made a covenant not to cut certain hair, and the hair then stands as a visible proof of having kept that vow, right, as you were mentioning. Indeed. But now, get this. There's a whole collection of rules requiring men of different religions to cut their hair, sometimes in fairly specific patterns. You know, that's exactly why we kept my kids out of private school right there. <laughs> No, Dave. We're talking tonsure, or the rules that prescribe which men have to cut which hairs in what shapes to signal their membership in a community. Tonsure was a practice in medieval Catholicism that was abandoned by papal order as recently as 1972. Mm, the 70s appear again. So was it was this uh, this tonsure that you speak of? Was that so more priests could perform in these uh, heavy metal hair bands? No, Dave. It was not. And some Catholic orders are still allowed, with papal permission, to tonsure their hair, with one of the most common styles being the Roman tonsure, where they shave the top of their head, leaving a circular crown of hair in a style apparently favored by St. Peter. Yeah, he's the one who guards the gates of heaven, right? Yes, Dave. Uh, good. Uh, so, given that hair uh, has naturally evolved into something, something of a Roman tonsure, uh, that my hair has done this... Um, that might mean that St. Peter would look kindly upon me. Is that what you're suggesting, Tim? I have no doubt that he will welcome you with open arms. Well, that's assuming, of course, I renounce my snake-handling ways and become a Catholic, <laughs> Tim. You know you know how I am. But uh, that uh, this covers uh, forbidden cutting, right? So what we've been talking about, and mandatory uh, cutting, a topic which my old man and brother frequently discuss. Uh, but what else you got on this? There's always minimal cutting, as in the military buzz cut or the intimidating look of the skinheads or the polished dome of actors like Yul Brenner or Telly Savalas, who shaved his balding head to play Punch's pilot and never looked back. Now, Tim, you know this, but I was in the military for a brief time. It wasn't in the 70s, but uh, much later. Uh, and I remember the induction cut that they gave me, uh, but they don't really call it an induction anymore. What with the all-volunteer force not being the 70s. Uh, and that gave off some negative vibes. They call it reception now, not induction. But a more welcoming approach in the language, I think. But, you know, the idea is basic. You know, they sit down and cut your hair. I actually enjoyed it, Tim, uh, because there's no that inane chatting about the weather, politics, or, you know, what the mayor is doing or something like that. And unlike the movies, very, very few people actually showed up with long hair. Uh, you'd be surprised. Most people with long hair don't join the military. <laughs> Uh, or people who are joining the military don't grow their hair out very long. 
I, I believe you on that. Yeah. Now, Dave, you probably know the origin of the military buzz cut. You know, indeed, I do. Uh, I think it goes back to when the uh, when the headlights were pretty. The headlights were the common enemy of America, uh, if not all, and they could spread like wildfire among men living at close quarters and whatnot in the barracks. And if you're in hand-to-hand combat, the ability to grab a guy's long hair gave you a real advantage, right? You just pull and yank on it as hard as you could. Uh, and so, for you know, it seems like for that reason, many contemporary units don't. Uh, wear kilts anymore for the very same reason. <laughs> good, good point. Now, this is a paradoxical situation we'll, refer to, we'll return to once we get to the current state of some players' hair in the NFL. But first, let's talk skinheads. I don't really want to, Tim, but okay. Uh, so a skinhead, according to Wikipedia, is, quote, may, or is, quote, may be a member of a youth subculture that is characterized by aggressively masculine hair and dress styles, including shaved heads, heavy boots, and in many countries, skinheads are commonly viewed as extreme right-wing nationalists or neo-fascists who espouse anti-Semitic and other racist views Some uh, said by some to be white power skinheads, uh, though the skinhead phenomenon is not always overtly political and not all skinheads are racist. Telly Savalas. <laughs> there you go. On the opposite end of the men's hair length spectrum, we find a substantial portion of players in the National Football League wearing shoulder length or longer hair, often in dreadlocks. You know, that sounds, uh, that sounds what is it, uh, both counterintuitive and dangerous, Tim. Uh, it seems like, you know, you could just tackle them with their hair just by yanking on it as hard as you can. Indeed, they can. In fact, back in 2003, after Dolphins running back Ricky Williams had a rushing career touchdowns of 66 and 8 receiving touchdowns. Uh, Dave, sports announcer talk was the last episode. Oh, sorry. Now, as I was saying, Ricky Williams was dragged down by his dreadlocks twice in one game. The NFL determined that a player's hair is part of his uniform and therefore is legitimate to grab in a tackle. It's a good thing he wasn't wearing a kilt. <laughs> good point. The decision by the NFL is now known as the Ricky rule. Not, not wearing a quilt. Uh, a kilt? No, the hair tackling. Oh, okay, okay. Well, so that, that does it sounds just like an especially dangerous way to tackle somebody. In fact, listen to this. A work energy dynamic analysis was used to estimate the forces applied to the head of the player as a function of the angle at which the hair is grabbed. And the conclusion was that long-haired players are putting their health at considerable risk. Consequently, the head of NFL officiating is considering making hair tackles illegal. It sounds like a hair-raising decision, Tim, that they'll make. But uh, back to the counterintuitive point. So once upon a time, sports broadcasts were sponsored by shaving cream, and the New England uh, Patriots are uh, now playing Gillette Stadium, named after the uh, famous Safety Razor Company, which I don't understand Safety Razor. Uh, that just doesn't make sense to me. Uh, but the Yankees, right? So the Yankees still have this uh, the following hair policy that all players, coaches, male executives are forbidden to display any facial hair other than mustaches, except for religious reasons, and scalp hair may not be grown below the collar. Long sideburns and mutton chops are not specifically banned. That Yankee policy was initiated in 1973 by then-owner George Steinbrenner, who disliked long hair because of what it symbolized in the culture wars of that time. You know, and for the same reason, the Yankees are not allowed to wear bell bottoms. <laughs> but, but in all seriousness, Tim, yeah, you know, the musical Hair was a, a big hit in the late '60s, celebrating the hippie county counterculture uh, with its sex, drugs, rock and roll, long hair, and whatnot. 
Indeed. And the association of long hair with rebelliousness was not new in the 60s. That's true. In the 1920s, almost every bomb-throwing Bolshevik worth his with the salt uh, or anarchist was depicted uh, as a fellow with long hair and a scraggly beard. Hmm. Reminds me of another superstar rebel of 1970 rock opera fame by the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, he played bass in the Steve Miller band, wasn't he? <laughs> right. But I'm, you know, uh, I and also uh, I am reminded of a conversation between my old man and my older brother. Uh, he wanted to grow long hair because, and I quote, uh, Jesus had long hair. To which my father said, "Well, when you start performing miracles, you can grow your hair long." But um, but your comment uh, makes me think we need an episode about the uh, uh, rhetoric of Broadway musicals. What do you think about that? Shh, don't spoil the surprise. Oh, <laughs> hey, you know, you may not know this, uh, but I've been in a great number of musicals, and uh, but we should probably get back to the hair. So um, we got long hair, short hair, mandatory hair, forbidden hair, the most scary one of all. But what's left, Tim? We haven't yet covered baldness and wigs, pun intended. You know, Tim, I don't get that pun. Do you care to explain it there, mister? That's right. You've been called out. You see, I prefer to think of it this way, Tim. Haired people, that's what I call them, are covering something up, namely their scalp. Why are they doing it, Tim? They got something to hide? Yeah, they got something to hide. They got their heads to hide. And people often describe it as, quote unquote, bald. You know, they actually are rated as being more mature and wise. And it's a proven scientific fact that we have, we, us bald people have more testosterone than you quote haired men. You know what that means, Tim? That many of our founding fathers are not as manly as you. Bingo. Now, Dave, I know you to be quite knowledgeable about American presidents. So I'd like to break with protocol and present you with my challenge now rather than at the end. Hit me with your best shot, Tim. Dave, which American presidents were known to wear wigs and who was the last U.S. president to wear a wig? Donald Trump. No, uh, no. to be honest, Tim, uh, I've seen conflicting reports about this. Um, some say that uh, uh, some president, one president did, and I've seen other sources say the other president, the same president didn't wear one. So I've seen conflicting things. So I can't really speak definitively, but I'd wager it's probably one of those early ones. Um, but here's the point, speaking of president's hair, uh, Richard Nixon's hair. I love Richard Nixon's hair. Uh, he had uh, what some would call a receding hairline and a reputation for being somewhat crooked and up to no good. I don't know if you've heard that one. Uh, but in effect, that being up to no good is reflected in his hairline. If you look at an image of him, look at his hairline. You're going to see what it looks like to be a pattern of a quote-unquote devil's horn shaped by that receding hairline. And see, and that associates him with the, well, you know, the most uh, infamous scandals in American history, one of the most infamous scandals in American history. And that, Tim, right there is what I like to call a rehertorical analysis. That is brilliant. Brilliant observation. I agree. Now I can see why your super powder powered brain was burned off all your hair. But let's get to the question of why wigs were so popular with men in the 18th century. And the answer is again, lice. Indeed, but that's only half the story. The other half is syphilis. Sounds like the morning after a great night in Las Vegas, Tim. <laughs> Not sure what you mean there, Dave, but it turns out that in addition to head lice, syphilis was rampant in 18th century Europe, and hair loss can be one of the consequences of secondary syphilis. So, if the head of the head of state is getting a bit patchy, one way to conceal that condition is with a wig. You know, I know uh, two big trendsetters in that regard, uh, and they were Charles II of England and cousin Louis XIV of France. Uh, both were really big 
right? They're really big on wearing wigs. And so uh, I guess you could call them uh, big wigs. Is that any that's, good? Yeah, that's, that's good, Dave. That's good. But like all fashion trends, it eventually fell out of favor around the time that royals started falling out of favor and their bewigged heads started landing in the basket at the foot of a guillotine. Well, at least they had some fluffy hair to land on, right? But uh, an interesting polarity in that what we might call the logos of hair. Uh, you mentioned that the presence of hair can stand as evidence of young men having kept a vow or covenant, uh, whereas the presence of a wig can conceal evidence of a lice-infested or syphilitic body. That's pretty neat. I'll give you that. And speaking of neat, while the ostentatious powdered wigs of the 18th century have been abandoned by most distinguished men throughout the world, one place where they persist is in the British legal system. That's, uh, yeah, according to one source, uh, quote, like many uniforms, wigs are an emblem of anonymity and attempt to dist distance the wearer from personal involvement in a way to visually draw on the supremacy of the law. So wigs are so much part of the British criminal courts that if a barrister doesn't have, wear a wig, uh, it's almost as an insult to the court. And the barrister's wig is different from a judge's wig, which is bigger and fancier. Mm. And according to the same source I just quoted, uh, most wigs are made of white horsehair. But as a wig yellows with age, it takes on a coveted patina that conveys experience. And those wigs ain't cheap, Tim. A uh, judge's full-length wig can cost more than $3,000, and shorter ones can uh, cost about uh, more than $500. Although, I'm going to be honest with you, Tim, I'm going to question that source because I think they probably cost like pounds. Uh, very, very <laughs> observant, very observant. And the barrister's wig includes a couple little pigtails that remind me that we haven't yet discussed the Chinese queue that has its own complicated history, including being the focus of anti-Asian harassment of Chinese immigrants in San Francisco. Indeed, it was, a, it was a hairstyle that involved shaving the front portion of the head, uh, whereas the hair on the top is grown long and usually braided. Uh, this style was required to be worn by male subjects in the Qing Dynasty uh, starting in around the 17th century, and it was common among male Chinese immigrants to California in the 19th century. And so uh, abuse of them by Anglo residents of California included assault, cutting off these men's cues, uh, and the passing of a pigtail ordinance of 1873. Uh, can you imagine that? Uh, that would require prisoners in San Francisco to have their hair cut to within one inch of the scalp. Although, the, uh, although it was passed by the Board of Supervisors, it was vetoed by the mayor, and a subsequent version was struck down as unconstitutional uh, in 1879. That's good. Your mention of the scalp leads to one of the most gruesome hair topics, which is the practice of scalping, something that developed independently in both the Old World and New World. It is most familiar to Americans as something attributed to indigenous peoples who engaged in this practice against enemy tribes long before Europeans arrived. It then became a particularly hard part of American history as Europeans waged war against Native Americans and against each other, with the result that British, French, Dutch, Iroquois and Mohegans not only engaged in the practice, but even paid bounties for the scalps of their adversaries in pursuit of their military objectives. So I guess uh, I guess Samson might have gotten off easy with just a haircut, right, and being blinded by the Philistines. Uh, although I'm sure he didn't much being enjoying being enslaved uh, once he lost his hair, though. 
As it turns out, he didn't have to suffer that indignity for too long, because the Philistine leaders decided to have Samson perform in a religious sacrifice to one of their gods. Thousands of people gathered in a temple to watch. Samson's asked if he can lean against one of the pillars, but by this time his hair had started to grow back. So he prays for strength and is able to break the pillars, leading to the collapse of the temple, killing him and all the people inside the temple. I'm not I'm not a marketing uh, uh, guy by any means here, Tim. But I would suggest Rogaine get on that as part of their marketing <laughs> campaign. But uh, on that on uh, on a more serious note, on the topic of hair and power, uh, we should wrap all this up with the Afro. Uh, in the days of slavery and the uh, up to the fight for civil rights, uh, many enslaved people uh, would style their hair to mimic white society to fit in, uh, lest they look different. Uh, and as the fight for civil rights became more prominent, African Americans grew their hair out and styled it more naturally, uh, befitting the nature of their hair, uh, skewing those kind of uh, ways of styling it as they once did to fit in with white society. So some styled their hairs with combs to create a rounded shape, which became known as the Afro, a symbol of embracing their African roots. And that came with the Black is Beautiful movement and also uh, a political statement in the 1970s. We good? We're good. All right. Now it's time for the bonus content. Will it be a fallacy, a historical anecdote, or rhetorical device? Let's have Dr. Tim spin the wheel. Okay, we've landed on fallacy. Today's rhetorical fallacy is the argument from the beard. I can't believe how serendipitous this completely random chosen topic is. I know, it's just madness, right? But it's 100% a real thing. So uh, let's take an example. Say there's two extremes. Uh, a person has a full head of hair or a person is completely bald. So in the process of going from a full head of hair to bald, when exactly does one become bald? The argument of the beard uses the same idea uh, but from the uh, evolution of facial hair, from clean-shaven to beard. So in either of these examples, uh, it's important, or it's impossible, uh, to come to a firm point of distinction between the two. And since there's no clear, definable moment between the two extremes of being clean-shaven or having a beard or bald or having hair, there's an issue of sorts. So does losing one hair or two hair or so on on the head kind of define baldness? Or does growing uh, 10 hairs on your chin create a beard, as many high schoolers might argue? So this fallacy resembles the, uh, the fallacy uh, or the paradox of the heap, which is usually talked about with this example. When does a pile of straw become a heap? With one piece of straw? Two? Three hundred? This, uh, this heap example is a common paradox. But we need to understand how the argument from the beard is a fallacy, which is different than a paradox. And so, Tim, here's the answer. The argument from the beard becomes a fallacy when one person presses the other person so hard and so aggressively for a precision in a definition that it negatively hampers the discussion or argument and the situation becomes abusive. Mm -hmm. And it becomes abusive in a sense that the pressure can derail the conversation or discussion. So it becomes fallacious, right? It's an impediment to effective argumentation. That's what makes it when you try so hard to focus on a point and to get a precision that it, it, it's impossible to achieve. But now this is not all to say that precision is unimportant. 
I think it is, and I think you would agree. But we all argue, we all discuss things in language, whether it be English, German, sign, hair, whatever. All language, by its very nature, is vague to a degree. Right, Tim? Indeed. So while the precision is a good thing, extreme precision is almost impossible. And when the extreme position is possible, uh, uh, it, impossible, I should say, it can have a negative impact on the overall debate. And here's the best part, Tim. The scholar we've taken this from, Douglas Walton, uh, who is well known in the argumentation world, uh, he does not give a firm distinction between the two extremes of uh, positions of precision and vagueness in language. And you know why, Tim? Because that would be falling victim to the fallacy itself. And that thing is amazing. But what's more amazing is the sponsor of this episode. Indeed. Today's sponsor is Digital Commons. Regardless of whether you get your TV signal from an antenna, a cable, or a satellite dish, you know that almost nothing you want to watch comes with the basic contract. Lately, the proliferation of subscription services from Amazon Prime to Netflix to Hulu to Disney Plus and Apple TV means that your monthly bill for viewable content has inflated from $60 a month to well over $200. To make matters worse, you may even have paid to rent a show that was freely available on one of your subscriptions. And while you are allowed to share your passwords with members of your own household, it is illegal to share them with a friend or neighbor. However, it is not illegal to share a neighbor's Wi-Fi with their permission. And that is why we created Digital Commons, a system for sharing content available over the Wi-Fi of up to six adjacent dwellings. So instead of you paying for six subscriptions, you pay for one and your neighbor pays for five other ones. And our built-in security system makes sure that you and your neighbors are able to access only the streamable programming and no other aspect of your digital environment. So for a nominal fee on top of your basic connection and one premium subscription package, you and a select group of neighbors enjoy every bit of content you care to view. Join our growing family of viewer cooperatives, because as we say here at Digital Commons, sharing is caring. You know, Tim, I thought we were supposed to have fake ads, but that's one hell of an idea right there. <laughs> All right. I'm David R. Dewberry, and that's Tim as seen on TV McGee. We're professors of communication at Ryder University, and this has been rhetoric rama a podcast about all things rhetoric. If you have any questions or are looking more, for more information, you can contact us via our website, rhetoric.fun, or consult your local library. Excellent.